Good afternoon and happy chocolate-covered cashew day. Welcome to the Gestalt IT Rundown for Wednesday, April 21st, 2021. My name is Tom Hollingsworth, and I am someone who really does love a good chocolate-covered cashew. Uh, joining me is my partner in crime and my co-host, Mr. Stephen Foskett. Stephen, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Mr. Tom. It's good to be here, but I am one who would not corrupt a perfectly good cashew and perfectly good chocolate by mixing them together. Not my thing. Uh, well, unfortunately, my new bold business venture is probably going to have to set this one out then. So I guess I should stick to the news thing that we do. So um, let's jump into some exciting things that have been going on in the world of technology over the last week. Uh, the first and foremost is thank you to Microsoft for finally patching a nasty little NTFS bug that could allow someone to create a download that could mark your hard drive as corrupted with a single click. Um, the feature in Windows 10 preemptively marks your drives as dirty or corrupted to uh, force you to do some kind of a, a disk check on them. Um, and the way that this was working was essentially it would allow you to open a command prompt directly on the disk and write to a sector that would cause Windows to think that the disk had been corrupted and then force you to do a reboot and a check disk. The problem is, according to Microsoft, it worked just fine as soon as you did the check disk. In testing, it broke about half the drives. So Microsoft just doesn't allow you to open a command prompt at that particular area anymore. Um, Steven, my question for you though is, I mean, this is a feature that Microsoft implemented because we really don't want to lose data on our drives. That's like the cardinal sin of storage. But was this kind of an unintended side effect that someone kind of got lucky finding out about? Well, let's start. Uh, okay, first, I'm sorry. Uh, I have to put on my storage nerd hat. There, my storage nerd hat is now on. Uh, storage nerd alert. So um, actually the cool thing about this is that there's nothing wrong with it. <laughs> nothing happens, it doesn't do anything. Everything was working. It was a feature, not a bug. Anyway, um, essentially it, Microsoft has a very flexible file system. NTFS is a very good, very flexible file system. And one of the things that you can do are some pretty advanced file system semantics. So on Unix, you know, you can actually treat um, sockets as a file in the file system. Well, in NTFS, you can actually do all sorts of really cool querying and updates to the file system by just referencing special files in something called a bitmap. And essentially what was going on here was you were looking at the bitmap to see if the drive was corrupted and it would just set the bitmap. It's a feature. It's not a bug. The problem is that I think that nobody ever said, well, you know, if someone does that, it's going to mark this as corrupt. And then it's going to force like a, you know, then you're going to have to restart and it's going to have to do a check disk. And that's bad. That's like a denial of service attack. So essentially, this was a really clever, I don't know, hack, bug, whatever you want to call it. But but nothing's happening. I mean, the, the cool thing here is, and, and the bottom line here is that no data was ever corrupted. And yeah, sometimes it didn't come back as clean after it did the check disk, bad, bad on you, Microsoft. Um, and they probably shouldn't have let any user accessing an arbitrary file name, like mark a drive as, as corrupted. But honestly, it's just really clever and cool and nerdy. I'm glad they fixed it though still because it was a denial of service attack because frankly, if, if anyone can cause you to have to do a check disk, a check disk can take uh, not as much time as it used to, but a little time. 
and that can cause your system to be offline and that's not good. So bada bing, bada boom, it's not a bug. Okay, um, speaking of not a bug, um, actually not speaking of not a bug, a report from 2010 states that Huawei may have been able to eavesdrop on mobile television conversations, including the Dutch prime minister. Uh, however, they couldn't understand it because it was in Dutch. Um, this week, uh, Dutch newspaper Die Volkskrank released uh, details of the report and noted uh, that over 6.5 million users could have impacted the KPN mobile network. Um, and uh, when asked for comment, KPN admitted the existence of the report, but noted that they had not observed uh, the Chinese tech firm engaging in this behavior. Um, Tom, why is a 10-year-old report making news today? And um, if the Chinese tech firm was engaging in this behavior, could they have observed it? Yeah, you know, the funny thing about this is like, this is a report based on a report that was filed 10 years ago and then probably put into some kind of filing cabinet somewhere in the uh, KPN archives. And then I bet you somebody uncovered it the other day and was like, oh my goodness, cell phone providers can eavesdrop on your conversations, news at 11 and 12 and all the other times, because guess what? They can, unless you're using a provider that encrypts calls end to end, like Apple, or you're using a method that allows that to happen through not a phone call. Yeah, just do a packet dump. You'd be surprised the kind of information you can find out about this. I can remember years and years ago when cell phones were uh, broadcasting in the clear back on the old, old networks. All you needed was a police scanner and you could find out some really juicy information about people. But here's the deal. Why is this 10-year-old report news now? We're starting to see a lot of very old breaches, a lot of very old uh, persistence in networks that's suddenly becoming a big deal. Why? Well, it turns out that these things have been around for a very long time. We just didn't know about them. So like you said, if Huawei wanted to be in this network, observing data, collecting data dumps, sending packets to a collection device somewhere, we wouldn't have known about it. In fact, it, it was a consulting firm that did an analysis of the network and said, yeah, they have the capability of doing it. We don't know if they did or not. And we may never know if they did or not. And we may never know who they looked at. They may have just decided to grab all the packets that they could. The key is, is that the capability was there. Now, should we blow this into a big deal? No. Do you know why? Everybody does it. We've seen boxes installed in all kinds of fun little data centers all over the world. And if you live in a foreign country, your traffic's being routed through a collection device. Plain and simple. End of story. So what should that tell you? Don't have critical conversations on non-encrypted lines. Don't trust your provider and maybe don't blow 10-year-old reports out of proportion? Who knows? All right, in slightly happier news, uh, Nebulon isn't just stopping at the cloud. The vendor which relaunched their cloud-defined storage platform last year has moved on to encompass hyper-converged infrastructure. The storage processing unit, which was their release product, it's a PCIe add-in card, it's being combined with servers and some off-box storage to become a platform for their HCI offering thanks to some hot little management software. Uh, Nebulon CEO, uh, Siamak Nazari, I hope I got that right, uh, has said that customers want the cloud experience for their on-prem infrastructure. Steven, is this a good fit for Nebulon and are they kind of bucking against the trend of everything going to the cloud here? Uh, yes and no. Next story. 
Oh, no, I'll, I'll talk about it. So Nebulon, actually, um, I've been following this company pretty closely since they launched because, uh, fun fact, Nebulon actually has a ton of people that I know from a company called 3PAR that was one of the real leaders in enterprise storage back in the day and was a presenter at Tech Field Day numero uno back in 2009. And uh, Nebulon presented this stuff at Storage Field Day back in August. So if you'd like to learn more about exactly what they're doing, I do recommend checking out that presentation. Just Google Storage Field Day Nebulon, you'll find it. Anyway, the, the bottom line here is um, their SPU, our service processing unit, is essentially a DPU or a smart NIC like you know, you, we've been hearing of from a lot of companies. In fact, like we're gonna hear about in the very next story. And um, Nebulon, uh, the, the smart thing that they did is instead of just delivering a platform like, oh, hey, here's a smart thingy and you can put it in your server and you can do stuff on it. They actually delivered a thing that's useful. And what they delivered to start off with was essentially an enterprise storage system that spans these cards. And so you stick these cards in your servers and um, bada bing, bada boom, you've got a cloud-managed enterprise storage system, full-featured, uh, all the cool stuff that you want from enterprise storage uh, right there in your system's PCIe bus uh, and uh, distributed across all of your servers. Um, now that I've said that, you're probably like, oh, wait, that sounds like hyper-converged infrastructure. And if you're saying that, well, yeah, it kind of is. Um, essentially, this is sort of the next step along the path for Nebulon. And, um, I'm pretty excited. I'm pretty interested in this. Um, you know, it's not a cloud cloud. It's sort of next generation enterprise infrastructure. Um, you know, it brings a lot to the table and, um, you know, it leverages these cards with, uh, you know, processor offloads that we're seeing spreading everywhere. You know, it's sort of uh, trend compliant. Uh, also, frankly, it reminds me a little of 3PAR in a good way. 3PAR was one of the best enterprise storage systems out there 10 years ago. And, um, and this is, you know, taking a lot of that stuff back into the future. So, I mean, frankly, um, I figured this was what they were going to do. Uh, they did it. I like it. Uh, it's cool. And I guess the, 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 the gist of it is instead of just delivering a, uh, a DPU, Nebulon is actually doing something with a DPU <laughs> that's pretty interesting. Uh, yeah, that's good to hear. And quite honestly... Any kind of application of DPUs is going to be a massive win because right now they are the the forefront of technology, but you know they've got to get out into the world. Um, one more story for you, Stephen, and it's concerning one of your favorite topics, AI. Xilinx is adding a little bit more power to their impressive lineup of chips. They recently announced Crea, which is a new solution aimed at providing resources for AI computing at the edge. The new offering is a small form factor that is specifically designed for smaller devices that live on the edge. The idea is that this embedded chip package will be able to be installed in devices that can be rapidly deployed in order to quickly ramp up AI capabilities at a given organization. Now, a lot of the experts are saying that Crea is specifically designed to combat the GPU enabled uh, AI solutions that are coming from NVIDIA. That makes a whole lot of sense considering who the new parent company of Xilinx is. That would be AMD, the perpetual thorn in the side of NVIDIA. Um, Steven, does this mean that the future of Xilinx is gonna be in these very specific application chips like AI focused things? Or is this part of a larger play to integrate into a lot of AMD's um, future plans? So 
when we say Xilinx, we mean FPGA. I mean, this is uh, basically the other big FPGA company. Uh, Intel, uh, of course, is the, uh, recent, you know, bought their big competitor and that's their, you know, the Intel uh, FPGA line. Um, you know, when AMD announced that they were going to be acquiring Xilinx, and I should point out that, that this hasn't gone through yet. The deal is not done. Um, it's in that sort of nether world between announced and closed. But that being said, uh, you know, a lot of people were a little bit scratching their heads like, okay, that's great, but what are FPGAs for anyway? I mean, essentially, you know, the, the bottom line here is you've got a chip that you can dynamically reprogram to do different tasks. And as you can imagine, that's really cool, but also kind of head scratching because it's great to have a chip that you can reprogram to do different tasks, but what are you gonna do with it? And, and to me, that's the, the, the interesting thing here. So let's take you back a few years uh, to NVIDIA's uh, GTC when they announced uh, the Jetson cards. Um, these were kind of uh, Raspberry Pi-like little cards. I actually have one right here. Um, and they included an NVIDIA GPU core. NVIDIA released these things kind of to seed the market in hopes that people would find some use other than graphics processing for GPUs. And uh, what happened was, well, they did. Um, they made these things cheap. They made them widely available. They're low power. Um, you know, you can kind of do stuff with them. And NVIDIA also released a bunch of software to go along with it to encourage people to try it out and play with it and, and, and get it into production. And that's pretty much what happened. So over the years, they released new Jetsons that have enabled new features and have new GPUs. And that's pretty much what uh, Xilinx is doing here. I, I love the idea. Essentially, this is a Xilinx Jetson or a Xilinx Raspberry Pi. And it's got an ARM chip on it and an FPGA on it. So instead of teaching people to use GPUs for AI, for example, you can now um, you know, get involved in using FPGAs for AI. And frankly, that's a kind of a cool application for this stuff. Uh, one of the challenges to a lot of AI applications is that essentially uh, once the chip architecture has been determined and rolled out, uh, you're basically stuck with that because it's fixed. So for example, those original NVIDIA Jetsons um, uh, are useless now because frankly, the version of uh, CUDA that they support is too old. It's 32-bit instead of 64-bit and nobody uses it. And so basically they're e-waste. Well, FPGAs are kind of never e-waste because the thing is you can reprogram the thing to do new stuff. And that's pretty much what's happening here. So Xilinx has a magical little, you know, experimental board um, with an FPGA that can do cool processing tricks. Among the cool processing tricks is AI. And I think that that's the important thing to know here is that it's not just about the chips, it's also about the supporting software. And so in addition to delivering the, uh, the, AI platform, the hardware platform with the FPGA on it, they're delivering software that's gonna help people use this platform to do cool stuff. And frankly, this is gonna be a really big enabler for them going forward. Because again, uh, one of the challenges with FPGAs is what am I gonna do with it? Well, now you've got a board that you can afford. I, I think these things sell for a couple hundred bucks and a processing a programming environment, software environment that goes with it um, you know, you've got a software development tool, you can put, you know, PyTorch and TensorFlow and experiment with things. And when you find something you like, then you can kind of step up to the, to the real version or the pro version. So honestly, um, 
this is uh, pretty exciting. Um, I love that they're doing it. And uh, frankly, it's in line again with what other competitors are doing. So, you know, Intel has some supporting software for their FPGAs, but they don't have a little Raspberry Pi like device like this thing uh, to give it a shot. Um, you know, NVIDIA has software that goes along with their, uh, you know, GPUs and people are using them. So I think that same is going to happen here. And I love it. And um, also, I will point out that Xilinx, uh, surprise, is presenting at Tech Field Day. So um, if you would like to learn more about Xilinx and what they're doing, uh, I can't say 100% that they're presenting this product. But tomorrow, uh, Thursday, April 22nd at 11 a.m. Pacific time, we're going to be live streaming with Xilinx. And uh, maybe if you're interested in this, you can ask a question, or at least uh, you can tune in. You can watch the recordings on our YouTube channel. Uh, and learn more about this uh, product, or at least about FPGAs in general. All right. Well, I will definitely want to make sure that we tune in for that. Uh, got a couple stories that we wanted to do a little bit more focused deep dive on. So uh, let's just dive right in, because that seems to be what Dell wanted to do last week, right after we got the rundown published, because they absolutely shocked the market after close by announcing something we knew was coming all along. They're going to spin off their share of VMware to help pay off some of that mountain of corporate debt that Michael Dell and Silver Lake Capital have accrued. While we're not financial analysts, please remember that, um, we think that these are two very important companies in the enterprise IT space. So what should people like us, meaning practitioners and things like that, make of this big announcement? And what things are going to change or is this really just a clever financial maneuver at the end of the day? I'm going to go with clever financial maneuver for 500, please, Alex. Um, this is the, well. This is the kind of thing that we expect from Michael Dell, isn't it? Uh, let's let's come up with a clever financial move. Let's do something different here. Um, you know, as you know, uh, EMC bought VMware um, like a decade ago in uh, one of the most you know, smartest and <laughs> you know, biggest payoff uh, corporate acquisitions of all time. And uh, they have obviously grown to become one of the most important companies in IT. Uh, VMware is essentially, VMware essentially is the enterprise hybrid cloud. And um, any company that's not using VMware is kind of a head scratcher at this point. And frankly, that has been a, a serious asset for EMC first, and then for Dell EMC and Dell Technologies, the global sort of parent company uh, for a long time, because, uh, you know, it's a golden goose. I mean, you know, VMware is a very profitable company with very good margins, uh, very low debt, very smart people, lots of customers. I mean, everything you want in a big, fancy, you know, company. Uh, Dell itself, on the other hand, is a very different company. Um, you know, as, as you probably could guess, Dell Technologies uh, makes a lot of money selling atoms instead of bits. Uh, they sell uh, storage and servers and networking and laptops and all sorts of stuff. And um, frankly, uh, those two things kind of don't go together very well from a businessy, financially, analysty, stock markety kind of thing. Um, you know, and this was kind of the problem here. So Dell Technologies had a ton of debt, uh, and it and, and the amount of debt that they had meant that they couldn't get the highest debt ratings, which meant that it was more expensive for them to borrow money. 
at the same time, uh, you know, they're making a ton of money. They're making money hand over fist, but it didn't look as good as it should have from a software company perspective, simply because they've got, you know, this other business that is just a really different kind of business attached to it. Uh, this transaction basically breaks that knot and allows VMware to be judged as VMware in the stock market, uh, Dell Technologies to be judged as Dell Technologies in the stock market, and as a side effect, helps to pay off uh, some of the debt that was accrued by Dell Technologies over the years. Uh, frankly, again, I'm not a soft or a financial analyst, but this is going to help both sides of the equation tremendously. So Dell will be able to borrow money at a nice high, you know, debt rating. In other words, they'll have to pay less interest on the money that they borrow, and that'll help them. Uh, Frankly, they'll be able to be judged as Dell Technologies instead of as the daddy who owns VMware in the stock market, which will allow them theoretically to grow and expand and fly on that side. Uh, VMware will be judged as a software company, an enterprise software and services company, like they should be judged. Uh, they also uh, will be able to kind of unlock additional borrowing opportunities because you know, they're not, their finances kind of aren't connected anymore to the parent company. And frankly, VMware will be able to pay off the debt that they're incurring in order to make this transaction happen. Um, it, it all makes sense. It's all very logical. And frankly, nothing will change because the bottom line is Michael Dell is still gonna be the chairman of the board for VMware and for Dell Technologies. And going forward, these two companies will still work together. They won't be the same company anymore, but they'll be two companies that work together and have the same chairman and have the same direction and are kind of aligned in uh, corporate wise. And um, yeah, it, everything makes sense about this deal. Even, even investors benefit because they're going to get a dividend from, from VMware and they're going to get some stock. So frankly, um, I don't have a lot to say and uh, enterprise IT practitioners shouldn't be concerned. They shouldn't even really care. Yeah, I we we've debated this a lot, and if you go back on GestaltIT.com, I mean, we we found uh, the episode eight of Checksum was about what's going to happen. Is Dell going to sell VMware? We just recently recorded a podcast that published about a month and a half ago. What is the fate of VMware now that Gelsinger is gone? And and I believe that at least one of us on that podcast mentioned this very outcome: is they're going to spin it off and turn it into something else. But the key here, like you said, is I've, I've always described the whole weird Dell, EMC, Dell Technologies, VMware relationship, like two divorced uh, people that get together again, but they have like that stepchild that's kind of on their own. And like, listen, you're good for my mom and I really appreciate that, but I am never gonna call you dad. Well, now that kid's going off to college and it's like, listen, I'm independent and I can take care of myself and I don't need you unless you're willing to send me 50 bucks for rent this week. Um, and dad's still like, you know what? You go get him, champ. You, you do know what he's up to, right? You do know what's going on. There's Michael Dell is never going to let go of VMware. And do you know why? And I say this with all of the, the positive feelings in my heart. Michael Dell is not an idiot. Michael Dell is a smart, capable businessman who looked at the investment that he got with Dell Technologies and all of the EMC Federation. And he said, that's my crown jewel. If I can find a way to leverage that, to turn it into something bigger and better down the road to help me with all of the other things that are going on, then yeah, I'll go ahead and spin it off. So Michael, first, if you're watching this, please do not hit me with a bolt of lightning because I said you were not an idiot. You 
are very smart and very shrewd. And I think that this is going to end up being a great move in the long run. Now, of course, we're all freaking out because what does this mean? Well, give it till the end of the year before you really decide, because honestly, this move can't happen before September, because that's when all of the options and all of the strings on this whole thing finally expire. But look at the way that everybody else judges this, because the smart money, I think, is going to say that this, just like Stephen said, this is business as usual. Nothing's going to change. The sky is not falling. We're unlocking a little bit of value out of VMware. We're paying off a little bit of debt for Dell makes things a little bit easier in the transition in the long term. Three years from now, we won't even know that anything has really gone on other than, you know, the, the paperwork will have somebody else's name on it. That, that's, that's really about all there is to it. Yep. Yeah. In, in your metaphor, I mean, it, it's like a married couple where, um, you know, the husband had bad credit and the wife uh, has great credit and, um, and that's kind of holding them, holding the couple down. Um, you know, essentially by getting this, this divorce, um, it's going to help both of them long-term. The only concern that I have honestly about this is that, you know, long-term, well, first Michael Dell is not immortal. Uh, also no lightning bolts. Um, theoretically, he may not want to be the chairman of VMware forever. And when he's not theoretically, VMware is free to go their own way. Uh, similarly, you know, we could see share activist shareholders get involved on the VMware side and maybe, you know, maybe that changes things. Um, and, and furthermore, some of the financial people that I do know are wondering if this was the best deal financially uh, that could come out of this. But again, I'm not really qualified to answer that question. Um, I, I'll just say that, frankly, you know, I'm gonna put my faith in, in, in Michael Dell and he probably, his financial people probably got the best deal out of this that they could have, uh, you know, given the reality of the market today. So Tom, let's uh, turn the page back to the security side here uh, to a really weird story. Uh, the Department of Justice revealed that the FBI got into the patch game over the last few weeks. Um, the law enforcement agency logged onto vulnerable Microsoft Exchange servers and implemented a workaround to prevent systems from being exploited by a series of vulnerabilities that were released earlier in the year. Uh, this is something that would normally be lauded, but privacy advocates are worried about the optics behind a government law enforcement agency gaining access to private servers under any circumstances without a warrant. And even with a warrant, is this what a warrant is supposed to be for? Um, Tom, I know that there's good intentions here, but um, should we be worried about this, that the FBI is like monkeying around with people's exchange servers? Uh, there's a lot to unpack in this story. Um, when I first saw it pop up on the newsfeed, my first thought was, that can't be right. This has got to be a joke. And then I dug into it. And yes, in case you were curious, the Federal Bureau of Investigation really is logging into people's servers and removing the exploit scripts that would allow people to remotely take them over. Okay, in theory, that's great. Let me change it. The KGB is logging into your email server and patching exploits. The CIA is logging into your server. Now suddenly do you start getting the little creepy crawlies up the back of your spine? Okay, I get that they have the best of intentions, but they are the last group that should be doing this. Anybody else should be doing this. The GAO, the FAA, the FFA, anybody else. Because when the FBI comes knocking at your door, I mean, there's only one thing more horrifying in the world of security and that's Brian Krebs is on the line asking for a comment. But yeah, you don't want the FBI monkeying around in there because here's the deal. This time, we'll let you get away with it. But now you've set a precedent. 
So the next time they come knocking around your email server, oh, we're fixing an exploit. And by the way, we're going to install this old tool that'll keep it from happening again. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Now you, you told them they could do it last time. So first of all, patch your damn exchange servers. Don't let the FBI do it for you. But second of all, somebody needs to do an investigation into this and find out who authorized it because the feds don't do things without a paper trail. So we need to figure out what happened. We need to get a scope of the whole thing. And we need to make sure that they understand that don't ever do this again without permission. And, and I'm not anti-law enforcement by any stretch of the imagination. I'm anti don't monkey around in places you're not supposed to be if you could be sued for it. And that's what's going to happen because now let's just say for the sake of argument that one of these companies ends up coming under a federal indictment for, for breaking the law or something. Well, if the FBI got into their exchange server and started doing stuff two, three years ago, any lawyer worth their salt is going to go back to that and go, well, they collect all that evidence illegally and we should have it all thrown out of court. You're opening yourself up to a world of, of problems just by trying to be the good guys. It's one of those things, um, I, I don't know, a lot of us in the tech space end up being uh, Kevin, the Wi-Fi guy for our uh, in-laws or our neighbors or people that we know from, from town or school. And, and frankly, my rule on that is always kind of you break it, you bought it. In other words, uh, you fix it, you bought it. Um, if, if, if your grandma wants you to fix her computer, uh, by all means, fix her computer. But just understand that the next time something goes wrong, she's going to ask you to fix it again. And the time after that, she's going to ask you to fix it again. And then she's going to ask you to help with this and that because you're the computer guy. Does the FBI really want to be the computer guy for everyone in the United States? Um, I think not. I mean, frankly, I'll just say this right now. I'm not naive, but I kind of trust that the FBI was doing the right thing with these servers. I really do. And frankly, I, I trust that their heart was in the right place when they're like, you know, we should fix that stuff. Um, but I do see a bit of a slippery slope here. I mean, can you imagine if, you know, the police in your town discovered a flaw in, um, you know, all like General Motors car door locks. And so they went around and looked in people's driveways to see who has a GM car and like got in there and like got under the hood and was like, ah, we'll just, we'll just adjust this here and fix that there and that'll take care of that flaw. Would you really feel comfortable with that, even if you trust them, even if you're like 100% on board, even if you know and can verify that they did the right thing? Is this really their job? And another question that I've got too is, is it possible that a court gave a warrant that said not collect data from these suspects, but go to these uninvolved environments and fix something? Like, is that even legal? Is that like a thing that a court can do? Is that what a warrant is for? I mean, I'm just, I just don't know. And, and, you know, so yeah, I don't want to be all like, you know, oh, they never should have done this. It's terrible. You know, don't trust the man. But on the other hand, I'm kind of like, like, like what even happened here? I just, the, 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 nothing about this story makes sense to me. And I don't suspect that it's going to make any sense as it gets even more clear. Yeah, I would agree, Stephen. That's, uh, I don't think we've heard the last of this, but there is one thing that does make sense, and that's the Gestalt IT Rundown, which you can watch every Wednesday at 1230 Eastern Time here on our YouTube channel. Uh, you can also catch the show notes. We'll publish those shortly thereafter along with the recording. Um, Stephen, you've got a busy week. What are you up to? Thanks a lot, Tom. Yes, indeed, I do have a busy week. This is Tech Field Day week. Now, 
Many of you know that Gestalt IT produces the Tech Field Day events series, and uh, we get together a team of a dozen nerds like us to listen to companies and ask them questions and discuss their technologies and their products and post the whole thing on YouTube. Uh, that's a thing we do. That's kind of where our money comes from as a company. Um, this is actually Tech Field Day, Tech Field Day. So this is our general purpose, all topics, all singing, all dancing Tech Field Day this week. And uh, you know, we kicked things off this morning with uh, Riverbed, um, a brand new company called Vicinity that's never been presented before. And um, Micron Technology is going to be uh, presenting actually uh, shortly after you are able to view this uh, Wednesday afternoon. Um, tomorrow, we're going to hear from Hazelcast and Xilinx, as I mentioned. And then Friday, we've got Blue Cat and Pure Storage presenting. So we would love if you tuned into those. You can just go to techfieldday.com. Or, of course, you can see videos of these presentations. Just go to youtube.com slash techfieldday. And uh, while, there, while you're there, you can look up some of the companies we've referenced here. And you can see uh, Tech Field Day presentations from other topics as well. Um, so that's what I've got going on. Um, it's been exciting. It's a, a lot to do. Um, we are also doing a special Tech Field Day presentation on Tuesday. Um, just go to techfieldday.com and learn a little bit more about that. That's a presentation with Scality and HPE. And um, it's going to be real short, easy to digest. Um, put that on your calendar. We'd love to see you there. Yep. And if you want to learn a little bit more about some of the other things we mentioned in this episode, like the Checksum video series or our on-premise IT roundtable, head over to gestaltit.com if you're not already there and uh, look up some of the information because it turns out we're really good at predicting the future, especially when everybody knows what it's going to look like anyway. But um, for now, for Stephen Foskett and for Tom Hollingsworth, we want to thank you for tuning in for this episode of The Rundown. Stay tuned for more great news headed your way next week. And remember to have a really awesome day today. Thank you.